0: This message comes from NPR sponsor Jobs Ohio. Ohio's business-friendly climate and people-friendly quality of life make it an ideal environment for new and growing businesses to thrive. Visit OhioIsforLeaders.com to learn more. Hey, really quick before we start the show, the How I Built This Book is now a New York Times and Wall Street Journal bestseller. So thank you to all of you who ordered it and for your support of this show. If you haven't picked it up and you want to learn the secrets of how to develop an entrepreneurial mindset, How I Built This, the book, is for you. It's now available wherever books are sold and in most countries around the world or by visiting howibuiltthis.com or guyraz.com. And thanks.
1: When people came to my house like it was literally a lab like I definitely didn't have an apartment you know I've ruined stoves, I've lost security deposits people would come over my house and want ice and I have no ice because my, my freezer is filled with lipstick molds I'm like, oh if you want ice you're barking up the wrong tree I don't have ice I have lipstick) <laughs>
0: From NPR, it's How I Built This, a show about innovators, entrepreneurs, idealists, and the stories behind the movements they built. I'm Guy Raz, and on the show today, how Melissa Butler launched a lipstick brand at her kitchen stove and got it into hundreds of Target stores, all the while challenging an industry to change the way it thinks about color and beauty. There are some industries that are really hard to break into if you're looking to start a business. For example, a car company. Just think how hard that would be. Aside from lots of experience and engineering know-how, you'd need an insane amount of money just to get it off the ground which is why you don't see that many new car companies every year. Now, one day, it may very well be possible that someone will figure out how to make cars in a really cheap and cost-efficient way that could allow lots more entrepreneurs to enter that category, which is essentially what happened to the cosmetics industry in the past two decades. It used to be that getting into cosmetics required a lot of experience, a network of connections, and lots of money. But today, the barriers to entry are much lower. There are dozens of white-label manufacturers all over the world that will happily make your product for a relatively small price. And it's meant that there's been an explosion of new cosmetics brands over the past decade. Which makes sense, because the global beauty industry is worth half a trillion dollars. Lipstick alone? It's a $9 billion global market. I mean there is a lot of money in beauty. And so to stand out, brands really have to be about more than just the products, which is exactly how Melissa Butler thought about her brand, the lip bar. When she started making her own lipstick in her apartment, she knew she wanted something that not only challenged the idea of what beauty is, but how we define who it's meant to apply to. Melissa wanted to make lipsticks that were bold and trash and vivid in colors that, at the time, weren't widely available. Blacks and golds and purples and bright neon pinks, shades and colors that were expressive and strong and confident, and most importantly, made for a whole category of women who weren't being served by the market, which happened to be Melissa's cohort. Black and brown women who didn't feel like there was a makeup brand made with them in mind. The story of how Melissa turned her kitchen stove project into a cosmetics brand that's now in hundreds of Target stores across the country includes a cross-country promotional tour in a retrofitted airport shuttle bus, a disastrous appearance on Shark Tank, and a decision to move the business from New York to her hometown of Detroit, where she grew up with her sister and her mom in the 1990s.
1: My mom was a crane operator, which is really crazy to say right now because I'm 34 and I've never ever met anyone else that was a crane operator. <laughs> but basically, she worked at a steel factory. You know, Detroit is automotive. So she was at a steel company that created steel and, and parts for the automotive industry.
0: And so she would leave for work in the morning with a hard hat,
1: steel boots. Yeah, definitely steel toe Mm -hmm. boots that I would sometimes put on and they were heavy as hell that I would put on and like kind of wobble around the house with. And so she would go to work at 11 p.m. and come home in the morning. And so I... I used to look at it as a disadvantage that I was raised in a one parent household because, you know, everyone needs their dad and everyone needs both parents. You need that, that nature and that nurture. You need that protector and that provider. You need your mom to be soft, or at least that's what I used to think. And as I've gotten older, I realized that it's probably one of my biggest advantages because watching my mom do something and work in an industry that is so male-dominated, I think it was only her and her best friend, they were the only two women in that entire steel factory. She saw that, that she had to live life for her and that no one was coming to save her. So she taught us very early that we had to save ourselves. So it was like she directionally ingrained this pathway for both me and my sister.
0: Was your mom, um, was she pretty strict?
1: No, my mom wasn't strict at all. Hmm. Like my mom was working. She was working all the time. I could have been a very wild kid, but I wasn't. Like I didn't sneak boys into the house. Like I remember growing up and like, you know, those curious teenage years where you may be interested in like drinking or maybe you want to smoke pot for the first time or even like sex. Like I, I wasn't interested in any of it. And I, I've never been a person to like study. i wouldn't I would never say that I was a good student, but I always got good grades i
0: don't I don't know Detroit super well. I've only been there briefly a couple times. Tell me about your neighborhood. was it? I mean, your mom, I'm assuming was it like was a union was a union job and probably had a a pretty solidly middle class income and and health insurance and those kinds of things that came with a job. Um, what was your neighborhood like?
1: guy in my neighborhood was horrible actually hmm. um and i'm from like one of the most dangerous neighborhoods in detroit but i never felt unsafe huh. and and even though we didn't have a lot i never needed anything so like in high school for instance i was i was one of the quote unquote cool girls like who had like the designer clothes but that was really my mom doing her best to to provide for her for us what she felt like would satisfy us. Mm-hmm. And and now when I talked to her, I remember maybe a year ago, I was like, Mom, we were living way beyond our means. And she's like, Yeah, but I, I did it for you. Yeah. And I'm like, that was irresponsible. And and we we kinda laugh about it now. But she was like, I just wanted you to be happy and I wanted to to be able to provide for you the life that that I felt like you deserved.
0: Okay, so you, you did well at school. You you Got good grades, mm-hmm. and and I guess you were able to test into this pretty competitive public high school in Detroit called Cast Tech, right?
1: Yeah, it's it's right near downtown, and it's it's essentially a college prep school, and it was probably ninety eight percent black students now it's a little bit more diverse because the city of detroit is changing so right now there's a lot more investment in the city whereas you know 15 years ago no one was downtown detroit so when i went to Cass tech it was surrounded by by people who were either homeless or drug addicts so it's like this amazing school that's in the midst of all the blight so detroit went through a really tough time and it hasn't been until maybe the last, you know, 10 years that it's, it's experienced this renaissance.
0: Do you remember as a, like as a high school kid thinking, I'm going to get out of this place. Like I am going to leave this place and I'm going to make money and I'm going to do something really interesting with my life. Like, do you remember having those thoughts?
1: I don't. Hmm. Um, I don't, I don't think that I thought about, of course I thought about you know, making money. And girls are taught that, that we should build fairy tales in our minds. I remember as early as maybe eight years old thinking like, oh, when I'm 24, I'm going to get married, I'm going to have children, and I'm going to be rich. That was probably the fairy tale that I told myself. Not knowing what any of that meant. Um, so I, I never thought that I needed to leave Detroit um, even with me living in a not so nice neighborhood, I didn't think that there was anything wrong with it.
0: Hmm. But, I mean, soon after you graduated, you you would wind up leaving Detroit. I, 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 in fact, I mean, you left Michigan, right?
1: Yeah. Um, and I was like, well, if I'm going to go to college, I'm going to go away. And most of my really good friends actually stayed in Michigan. But I knew that I wanted to go to a, to a HBCU. Yeah, That was a given. I knew that I wanted to be around Black people. And so I didn't want to go to what we call a PWI, which is a predominantly white institution. I knew that I didn't want to go to Michigan State or or Michigan because I wanted to have some pride and really have the Black experience.
0: Right. So I guess you start off at Alabama State, which is in Montgomery, Alabama, but but then you decided to transfer to, to Florida, to Florida A&M in Tallahassee.
1: Yeah. And They were both two really great HBCUs, and they both had really good business programs. Like I knew that I wanted to get into business because in high school, um, I used to work at my cousin's clothing shop. So my cousin is my first exposure to entrepreneurship. Hmm. Like he had a store in the mall and he taught me everything about margin and pricing your product hmm. and hiring people. And he also gave me a lot of independence. And now that I say that, I think that was the theme of my childhood, yeah. having independence and and being given this room to be a free thinker and come up with, with the answer for yourself because I'll never forget it was probably Christmas Eve and he allowed me to count all of the money that we made that day. And it was the most money I had ever seen. <laughs> it was insane. And I think I counted maybe like $12,000 and I was just like, oh my God, he's rich. Like I thought, Yeah. <laughs> I was like, whoa, I couldn't believe that number one, he let me count the money. And then number two, that we had made that much money that day. And my entire goal for going to college wasn't necessarily because I wanted to get a higher education. I didn't really care about it that much. But I went to college because I was like, this is how I can make money.
0: So so what was your plan? Like, what? how were you gonna do that?
1: So literally, I switched my concentration and my focus to business finance. And that's where I stayed. And I was like, okay, well, if I'm going to do this finance thing, I'm going to go and work on Wall Street because, you know, now I can be the wolf of Wall Street. Again, being <laughs> being influenced by, by pop culture. So, yeah. like, I didn't know anything about it. Like, again, my mom was a crane operator. And I had a cousin who was an entrepreneur. But I didn't know that there were so many different paths to make money.
0: Yeah. Okay, so you, you wanted to get into finance. But... But before you graduated, I read that you actually spent some time in China, like, uh, like in Beijing, yeah. learning Mandarin.
1: For six months. Oh, yeah. wow.
0: wow. And
1: I had just been really fascinated with China and this idea that China was about to be the next superpower. And I was like, that would make me valuable. If I huh. wanted to learn about business, you know, if I'm this business girl, I should go to China and learn a little wow. bit about their business. Yeah. But it was a complete culture shock. I mean, <laughs> I, I think I was sharing that literally my my entire life was black. Like I came from black Detroit, you know, I went to a black, all black high school in Detroit. I went to a black college and now here I am the only black woman and I'm in the middle of Beijing. (laughs) It was, it was so odd. Mm. And I think they were also shocked, you know, um, people would come up to me and and touch my skin and everyone automatically assumed that I was, you know, from an African country Mm. because if you had black skin, then you were automatically from, from Africa. A, from Africa yeah. And if you were from America, then you were blonde hair, and blue white. eyes. Right.
0: I mean, how would you like assess the whole experience? Was it
1: It was life changing. Yeah. Oh my God, it was life changing. Like I understood like how big and small the world was. Hmm. I understood how a woman from Detroit could have such synergy and connection with a woman from Iceland. Like one of my really good friends who I met there, she was from Iceland. And like she was my best friend when I was in the program sort of thing. And we would just talk about a lot of the same things, even though we had a completely different life. And I think for the first time in my life, I understood that we were all human and it wasn't just black, white, Asian. It was just humans. Wow.
0: So you come back to the U.S., and you decided to go work on Wall Street for Barclays Bank. Mm-hmm. And when you got to New York, what, what was that like? Was it exhilarating? Were you just like, were you just kind of blown away by it? Or were you sort of, was it un- unnerving to be in this kind of corporate environment? What, what was your, what's your memory of starting out at Barclays as an analyst?
1: I thought, and I still think that New York is the most magical city on hmm. the planet. I was awestruck by all the big buildings. And I remember my first time like being in in like the financial district or, you know, our first office that I worked in was in Jersey City. And just like being like a banker girl, I was like, whoa, this is crazy. And, and I started very quickly meeting other people who like worked at Morgan Chase or worked at Goldman Sachs. And, and it was like a, a whole world. But I remember you know my first week being really excited and like expressing that I wanted to learn and like I wanted to learn as much as possible and I wanted to 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 be good and like one of my managers was like get over it kid they give shit bonuses (laughs) and I was like wait what I didn't know what that that really meant I didn't know what a good bonus was what a bad bonus was I just knew that he was unhappy and a lot of my team members weren't were unhappy so um I think very quickly, like I learned that I wasn't gonna learn that much, but then also that if I stayed there, that I would be in this environment where no one likes their job. And like, from my perspective, I'm like, hell, I just got all these student loans. I had racked up like yeah, $50,000 to pay them back. But also like I didn't do all that. I didn't go to college and get these student loans and and go to China for 6 months to be in a career that I hate and then from what you're telling me isn't necessarily even a, a career path that's that's desirable anymore. So I was disheartened, hmm. if I'm going to be honest. It was mostly white men and, you know, they would ask me questions about my hair cuz I would as a black woman like one of your superpowers is that you get to change your hair all the time and do whatever you want to do. And I was constantly like asked about either my hair or my clothes or if something happened in the media with a black person. And this is oftentimes the the plight of a black person working in corporate America. You're never able to be an individual. yeah. Like, so every day, I had to answer for the entire black race. and and it was exhausting. Oh, working at Barclays was exhausting,
0: fair enough. I mean, it sounds like the most boring job on the planet, let's be honest. It
1: is. It <laughs> finally just sounds so like
0: boring. I mean, I know you make tons of money if you stick with it, but my God.
1: Yes, yeah, not fun. <laughs>
0: um, so you're doing this. You're clearly, this is not like what you want to devote your life to. But you need the job, you need the money, and you're kind of working and earning your paycheck. But I guess on the side, you were kind of just looking for different creative outlets. And, and, and I read that one of them was uh, making soap. Yeah.
1: So I had gotten really into um, this soap that was sold at Whole Foods. It was so expensive. My mom thought that I was crazy because I tried to call her like, Mom, I found this soap. It was so cool. And she's like, what is it? I'm like, well, first of all, it's expensive. It's like $6 a bar. And she's like... (laughs) $6 soap? I grew up where my mom would buy like, you know, the the six pack or eight pack of like Dove or Dial, and that whole thing was $6. She's like, you're buying one bar of soap for $6? She's like, I don't want to know about it. So I'm buying these expensive soaps and as a hobby, because also I'm now listening to my mom like, wow, I am spending a lot of money on soap. And I'm like, well, if this soap is so great because it's natural and it's handmade, then why can't I make it? So I first started making soap for my own personal use. Hmm. How
0: did you and by the way, how you're just like going online and and looking up like how to make soap?
1: yeah there were there were tons of like forums. I took a soap making class. I'm buying all sorts of ingredients. I'm on YouTube learning how to make soap. I'm like reading books on soap making like i'm I'm literally going in. it's it's oh. insane
0: how do you and by the way, and what did you learn about how to make a bar of soap like um, like i'm assuming there's like glyc- maybe glycerin or vegetable oil or like um i don't know what yeah what, what would you buy to and like i don't know, melt it down on like your up stove on your stovetop, like in a pot and yeah, then melt ba- basically, it basically yeah,
1: and... in a pot with a pyrex like a double boiler yeah. oh right okay yeah. um you could you could make soap with glycerin which was more moisturizing yeah um but i didn't think that it it cleansed you as well hmm. so the old-fashioned way of making soap and this is the way that i typically made them was with lye oh, which yeah. is dangerous <laughs> um and it can burn you and i like definitely got right? burnt uh, yes yeah. yes and, and you had to handle it very carefully and then soap goes through a curing process so it could take you know three months for your your soap to cure or you can put it in the oven to cure that soap. Wow. And then I came up with this idea because I was, I was really getting into like the creative component of making the soap. So I was thinking like, okay, well, what are all the different flavors that I can make? Like I was making a strawberry bar and I put like dried strawberry in it. And I was like, uh, I don't think that's really clean or sanitary because also I'm not a chemist and I don't really know what I'm doing. And so when I'm coming up with these outlandish ideas, I don't have anyone to say like, hey, that's actually not good for pH balance. Or this is going to, like, cause bacteria and mold to build. So I'm trying all these different soap recipes, and I'm trying to make it look all cool and, you know, have a gradient with the soap bar. Like, creating ombre soap bars. Like, I spent so much time making soap and, honestly, so much money.
0: By the way, I, I have to confess it sometimes when I'm at Whole Foods and I am buy that Soap area, you know where they've got like those beautiful translucent bars of soap, like mm-hmm. with things like flowers or whatever suspended in the soap. I kind of want to. It looks delicious. Like part of me wants to just take a big bite out of it sometimes. <laughs> just They're honest. beautiful,
1: and and oftentimes they are all natural. And I mean, it's not going to taste good, but it won't kill you,
0: <laughs> right? I mean, because like we did Lush on the show. We we did the whole episode on Lush, and uh, mm-hmm. and that stuff looks is beautiful too. Like that, you know, the sliced. You know loaf of soap that you can so here's get.
1: the thing i was obsessed with with lush and lush is really like i actually don't think i've had this full circle moment but in in my soap making i was like i want to be lush and i think that's what made me say like i want to start a soap business actually because i was obsessed
0: and clearly you start thinking it's i mean it sounds like the gears in your head were turning and you're like wait a minute there's Lush. There's all these. Co- like maybe this is the business. Maybe maybe I should do this as a business. Like you start to think about this.
1: Yeah, I'm like maybe I should start a soap business. Hmm. Like this is it. I this is this is my way out. I'm gonna create a company. It's gonna be called the Soap Bar. I love it. And Very all creative.
0: Of, soap Bar. Right. I'm surprised that that name didn't exist. That it wasn't taken.
1: Nope, it didn't exist. And the concept was that all of the soaps would be named after drinks. Right. So I would have a Margarita Bar that was like lemon and lime basically with yeah. sea salt on top. So I had all these really fun ideas and all these grand plans. And, and ultimately one day I was calling a supplier and I was looking for you know more pigments for my soaps because I was trying to get really funky and fancy with my colors. Yeah, well ombre and, colors
0: are, yeah, I mean that's very challenging.
1: Yeah, yeah, it takes a little work, it takes <laughs> take some time.
0: Ombre design, yeah.
1: <laughs> And he's like, wait, slow down, slow down. Do you want lip gloss pigments or do you want soap pigments? Huh. And I was like, uh, lipstick. I knew nothing about lipstick, but I couldn't believe that I could buy lipstick pigments. And that was it for me.
0: Wait, you just call the supplier to ask for more pigments and they're like, lipstick or soap? And you're like, wait, lipstick?
1: yeah. And it was a split second. It it was so crazy because I paused. Yeah. Knowing good and well, I was like looking for soap pigments. It was almost something that I felt like, like I shouldn't have been doing, like I shouldn't have access to it. So when he said lipstick, I'm like, I can make lipstick. Oh, I'm done with this soap business.
0: When we come back in just a moment, how Melissa spends down all of her savings to launch a lipstick business and why after she's flat broke, she goes one step further and quits her day job. Stay with us. I'm Guy Raz and you're listening to How I Built This from NPR. Support for How I Built This comes from 3M, helping to protect those on the front lines every day. As the father of a healthcare worker, 3M employee Chris understood how important it was for his daughter and nurses like her to be protected during COVID 19. At the height of the pandemic, he worked hard to direct high performing personal protective equipment to hospitals and hotspots. Hear his story at 3M.comslash improving lives. 3M science applied to life. This message comes from NPR sponsor Don Julio Tequila. Don Julio Gonzalez didn't just farm agave, he worshipped them. He harvested each agave individually, plant by plant, only handpicking the agaves at optimum maturity. And his legacy lives on today through his exceptional tequila, Don Julio, a life devoted to tequila making. Please drink responsibly. Don Julio tequila, 40% alcohol by volume, copyright 2021, imported by Diageo Americas, New York, New York. Hey, welcome back to How I Built This from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. So it's right around 2010, and Melissa had just had one of those life-changing phone calls with a supplier who asked, just kind of randomly, if she was looking to buy products to make soap or lipstick. And in that moment, she decided lipstick. For one thing, lipstick was actually one of the few kinds of makeup she wore
1: at the time i think that i was into reds, oranges and purples. Oh yeah. Yeah. And, and part of it like part of the reason why when we launched the lip bar we had such crazy colors is because i remember it being so difficult to find purple lipstick. Hmm. Like i wanted purple so bad but it's like only a couple brands sold purple at the time and it was hard to find and it wasn't in stock. And I'm like, why is it so difficult for me to, like, have this bit of self-expression?
0: And then I'm trying to think about, like, well, what's the next step? Like, then you're going to get a, a box of just powder, pigment powder, for lipstick. But how do you make lipstick? Like, what, where do, you, what do I go to learn about how to make a lipstick? Did you, did you like, go online and type in lipstick recipes?
1: Yeah, pretty much. Um, I probably Google how to make lipstick. And there wasn't that much out there at the time, but instead I found a lot of lip balm. And lip balm is the cousin to lipstick. And I'm like, okay, well maybe I should start here. Maybe I should start making lip balm and maybe I should start making lip gloss. And so I started looking for other suppliers to see if they had other things or recipes or other formula bases that I could use to start making my own product. Hmm. And I just started experimenting and I probably made, I don't know, a thousand batches of lipstick, none of them worked before I found one that was like
0: it. First of all, what do you melt together to just get the, you know, the the base for lipstick?
1: Well, this is the way I've, I've explained it. Like all lipstick is basically the same. It has its same like core ingredients. All of it has a wax, all of it has oil, and all of it has a pigment. Right. Now, depending on the waxes, depending on the oils and the other additions, That's going to impact the amount of color. That's going to impact the texture, if it's soft, if it's creamy, um, if it's moisturizing, if it's long-lasting. Now, all of those other things are optional.
0: Right. And then depending on the proportions, like that's going to affect the texture, like when you apply it to your lips, how that is sort of spread onto the surface of your skin, right? Like a thinner coat or a thicker coat, things like that.
1: Yeah. So... If you have too much oil, it's gonna be soft and it's gonna feel luxurious on your lips, Mm. but that lipstick probably is gonna break. If you have too much wax, then it's not gonna spread on her lips in a nice silky and and creamy way. Um, If you don't have enough pigment, then you can have this beautiful color, like the actual lipstick could be a bright pink, but when you actually put it on your lip, no color shows up. So it has to be a really delicate balance of pigment, oil, and wax.
0: It's like a really luxurious and expensive crayon.
1: That's exactly what it is.
0: And when you had all the ingredients and you started to like melt stuff together, what did you pour it in? Are there like, I mean, can you just go online and get like lipstick molds?
1: Uh, yes and no. So, most companies, like the huge companies, the L'Oreal's of the world, they pretty much had a monopoly on the molds market. So, there was, from my understanding, and this is in 2012, there were only a couple of suppliers in the US who made molds. Huh. And the biggest one was Kavala. And I was able to buy maybe four used molds, and trust me, they were not cheap. I think I've spent like a whole paycheck on them.
0: Like thousands of dollars?
1: Yeah, the molds were maybe $1,500 a piece. What are they made out of, like metal? Steel, so they were also very heavy. So yeah, I probably bought maybe six or eight thousand dollars in molds and how I bought them and how I had access to them is I found a lab that was going out of business and I think they were in Louisiana and this guy was selling them and I found them on Craigslist, I think.
0: (laughs) I'm trying to imagine you in your apartment um, like after working on the weekends melting down all this stuff and experimenting with different colors and pouring it carefully into the mold and probably getting, like, lipstick material all over your kitchen. <laughs>
1: Just
0: stressing out. Yeah.
1: It ruins grout. Like, <laughs> there have been so many times where I would drop the pigment and you can't, it's impossible to, to clean it up because it's literal dye. It's literal dye that is in the makeup and in the lipstick. So, you know, i ruined stoves. I've lost security deposits. When people came to my house, like it was literally a lab. Like I definitely didn't have an apartment. Yeah, I had a lab. And so, you know, the whole table would be spread out with all of my different ingredients that I kept in these airtight jars. And after I made, like, let's say I melted down this perfect lipstick and I poured it into the mold I really wanted it to the lipstick to cure so I would put it in the freezer so people would come over my house and want ice and I have no ice because my my freezer is filled with lipstick molds I'm like oh if you want ice you're barking up the wrong tree I don't have ice I have lipstick
0: <laughs> So you, and you were presumably working like 60-hour weeks at Barclays.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I was so committed. I I started looking for suppliers in China for packaging. I started, like, I would come home. I would maybe get home at... You know, 7, 8 p.m. And then I would stay up until 3.30. Wow. You know, working on the recipe. I have no idea how I functioned. And then I would get back up at 7 and go to work.
0: And did you tell anybody about it? Were you like talking to friends like, I'm making lipstick. I'm just really excited about this thing
1: oh absolutely they were all my first customers like every single time i made a product like i never wanted to drink my own kool-aid so i would invite people over to try on the product like what do you think about this what do you think about this
0: who are you inviting over friends that you you met in new york or people that you've known from college or
1: both people i had known from college who were also in new york people i met at work anyone who would try it honestly i remember taking lipstick to work actually Hmm. like hey i made this can you try it out and people were like, no, is it going to break me out? You made it. No, I don't. Does it? How do you know it works? And I'm like, I don't. That's why I want you to try it out.
0: <laughs> we don't test on animals. Just on uh, just on Barclays and Bluys. Just boys. on humans. Yeah. yeah. We test on finance people. So, um, and you're kind of experimenting and teaching yourself again and again. And at what point did you land on a recipe that you thought, yep, yeah, because... You said there's oil, there's wax, and there's color, right? And so those are Mm -hmm. the basic ingredients, but you want to get a certain type of wax and a certain type of oil and a certain type of color, right, that speaks to you. So when did you know that you found that right formula?
1: Yeah. I mean, my parameters for me were, they were just crystal clear. I was like, it needs to be vegan. I don't want any animal products or any animal byproducts. Mm -hmm. And I want it to be as natural as possible without compromising the color. So I knew that I wanted to create wild and crazy colors, things that you really didn't see on the market at that time. And I want it to feel good. So what's something that feels really good and creamy? And I was like shea butter. I'll, I'm gonna put shea butter mm. in the lipstick, and, and that was that was it. Like I just started then looking for ways to source shea butter or coconut yeah. oil. And I think I tried a ton of different natural ingredients to add to you know that baseline formulation. But really, you know, I found out that it was working when people started saying like, Hey, can I get a little bit more of that? Hmm. And that was it.
0: And did any of your like colleagues or or colleagues or friends? Were they assuming that this was something that you might like sell at a farmer's market on a weekend, or like was that what they assumed? Were they even asking you what you were going to do with this?
1: Um, I think I made it very clear that it was going to be a website. Hmm. And I don't think anyone took me serious until I got a shipment of our packaging. And here I am with 30 boxes 30 boxes. Like they're on the couch, they're on the floor, they're everywhere. And here I am just kind of waiting, like. You remember that company I said I was gonna start? Yeah, it's in my living room. And one side is all boxes and one side is all of my lab materials and, and I think that's when they took me seriously.
0: So you were presumably making the sticks in your kitchen and then you were putting them into the into the, the lipstick tubes. The yep, tubes. Into okay. into the
1: lipstick tubes.
0: And you found a factory in China to, to make that packaging?
1: I did. And the the inspiration behind the packaging because our packaging really stands out. It's really cool. It's intricately designed. And the inspiration was a bird cage. Like I hmm. love like the old school Victorian bird cages that yeah. are just like super intricate. I don't like the idea of birds in cages. No. But I, I like love that. the yeah. beautiful craftsmanship. And so I was like I want it to kind of look like that. I want hmm. I want something that doesn't look like a traditional tube because I'm building a non-traditional company. And I had been asking a lot of friends like, you know, what do you think about makeup? And hmm. And oftentimes, especially for black women, what I found was they felt like beauty wasn't for them.
0: That it was made for, not for their skin or their complexion. Yeah.
1: Absolutely, that it wasn't for their complexion, that they they never saw themselves within the industry, that marketing didn't cater to them unless they were, you know, putting something in a brown bottle. And then they're like, hey, this is for black people. So here I am friends with a lot of um, people who are now for the first time in their lives, they have disposable income you know, because we were all fresh out of college, basically, and, and making a, a pretty solid salary. And I was just like, there's a huge gap in terms of like, what my generation wants and what's readily available in the market.
0: I mean, you look at your website today, and clearly, your products and your brand, um, they're designed for, for every kind of person, every skin tone, every racial and ethnic background and group. When you were Initially, coming up with the idea, were you saying, you know, to to your friends who you were kind of asking for feedback? Were you were you sort of saying, look, no one is is serving us. You know, we are consumers, and we spend a lot of money on fashion and beauty, and we don't feel like products are being made for us. And so, I want to make products for us. Was that was that how you thought about it initially?
1: Yeah, I think the goal was. To create a brand where black women could be the default. So we create products, like you said, for every single skin tone. Like it literally doesn't matter what complexion you are. We have something for you. But when we first launched in 2012, I was just like, I don't want black and brown women to feel like they have to fit in to the lip bar. I want them to know that they are the lip bar and they're not the default anywhere else and my brand is gonna be where that starts.
0: Okay, so you come up with a really cool packaging design that, that looks kind of like a, a birdcage and you've got this factory in China that can make the boxes. Um, do you remember how many packages, like like lipstick dispensers you had to order?
1: Yeah, I think the minimum order quantity was 12,000
0: units. Wow, so you had 12,000 units like, stacked in up in kitchen. boxes in your kitchen? Yeah. And you had to pack each one by hand. You had to take the, lip, the actual lipstick and pack it in.
1: Every single one. So I hand-poured it into the mold and our my molds held i want to say one held 48 units and one held 72 units it's gonna take a while
0: to do this gonna take a couple oh this
1: is yeah this is this is serious but i think i launched with 12 shades and the goal was to have 500 of each made so, the good thing about being your own manufacturer is you control it. So, I didn't have to use all 12,000. That certainly wasn't the goal. I was like, okay, I'm going to invest in this 12,000. Maybe the goal would be to sell all of this in a year.
0: Yeah. Now, the soap idea was going was gonna to be called the soap bar. And so, this was going to be called the lip bar. Was that name as a business available?
1: The business name was available, the Lip Bar. I really wanted it to just be Lip Bar, but yeah. Lip Bar wasn't available. Right. I didn't think too much about the name, if I'm going to be honest. I just took the whole concept of the soap bar, and I was like, this is a really cool concept that I like. Now I'm going to apply it to this different product, and boom, I have a business.
0: Yeah. <laughs> and and But the soap bar, you were going to name each soap, like um, the Margarita or the Lime Ricky or the Gin & Tonic. Were you going to do that with the lipsticks, too?
1: I did. And so we have Cosmo, you know, that was one of our our colors. And gin and tonic Mm -hmm. is still one of our colors, actually. Um, But we had things like Fuzzy Navel and all these like (laughs) crazy names. Sour Apple Martini, it was literally a green lipstick. Fuzzy Navel, I think, was like a light orange, like coral lipstick. Mm -hmm. And because it had that bar tie-in, my concept was that Whenever you bought a lipstick, you actually also got a recipe card for that drink. Hmm.
0: By the way, do you remember? I mean, you must have, I'm assuming you got 12,000, these tubes, right? The packaging for the lipstick. You had to spend a lot of your money on this. Was any part of you nervous about doing that? (laughs)
1: <laughs> I sp- not even just like a lot of money I think I spent all of my money guy yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I spent my entire <laughs> savings um, because the thing that I didn't take into consideration was you buy it but then you also have to get it here so I, I learned a whole new skill set about like ocean freight and like duties and tariffs and taxes and all that jazz so I think buying the the units and then actually getting them to my Brooklyn apartment may have cost me thirteen thousand dollars I mean that's a and then on top of that of cash, I have to buy yeah. all the ingredients I'm planning a launch party I have to have pictures taken so the startup cost for the business was probably around thirty thousand dollars
0: Wow and so as you were getting ready to launch um, this is still pretty much you doing everything. I mean, were were you turning to to friends for help at all?
1: Yeah. Um, my friends ended up being my my founding team hmm. because I didn't know anything. I didn't know any better. So Roscoe, who's our creative director, she moved to New York. Like she moved to New York three weeks before we launched. And you know some of my other friends in finance, I'm like, can you do our sales? Can you do our branding? Can you do, a-? like I had a team of six people. None of us were making any money. And Roscoe
0: it was, was Roscoe somebody you knew from, from high school? She was a friend from high school?
1: Yep, Roscoe had been one of my really good friends from high school. We both went, went to cast together. And
0: you basically said, hey Roscoe, I think her last name is Spears, right?
1: Mm-hmm, so she wanted to start a career in fashion, so New York was attractive to her anyway. And all of my friends, they just kind of were like, what's what's the lip bar? I told them, and then they were like, okay, cool. And so now here we are, we're, we have a business. And so I remember at our launch party, the very first person who showed up, we weren't even finished setting up yet. She came like 30 minutes early. Um, It was a beauty editor from Teen Vogue. And I think we were all stunned, like, wait, people care. People are listening. And so it it was a really fun event. And we got a lot of people to come, which was really interesting because we didn't really have a big budget, and we didn't really know anyone in New York City. And, and we had gotten the attention of, of some beauty editors, so that was super cool. And we were so proud.
0: At a certain point, you, you were going to have to make the decision of whether to quit your job. Now, I should make the caveat here that you were—one of the biggest advantages I think you had was that you were young. Yeah, yeah. That if it didn't work out, you know, you could maybe go back to to finance or something like that. But but it sounds like you kind of just got to a point where you're like, yep, I'm ready. I'm gonna quit my job and do this. And I, I think it happened like in 2013. Were, were you nervous at all about about quitting your this job in finance?
1: No, I wasn't nervous. <laughs> I, th- I think you're absolutely right. I think one of the like magical things about being a first time founder, especially in an industry that you don't know anything about, you're completely naive and and you think that everything is gonna work. like I didn't have a plan, but I knew that it was gonna work somehow. And our first year in business we launched in two thousand and twelve, I think we made twenty six thousand dollars, right and,
0: and that was mostly from friends and family who would yeah, absolutely. Them. And you and your small group of friends were packing all the stuff. You were, like, making the lipstick and packaging them yourselves.
1: No, that was actually all me.
0: It was all you? Okay.
1: Um, yeah, I, I was still making and packing all of the products. And, and my friends were, like, you know, maybe doing social media or helping with PR. Or, you know, Roscoe was planning the photo shoots. Roscoe's lane has always been, like, she's the visual person. Yeah. But that twenty six thousand dollars, even though it's not a ton of money, I was so proud to make yeah. that twenty six thousand yeah. dollars. I couldn't believe it. I was like, "Wait, what?" Yeah. I think I think my job on um, at Berkeley's, uh, you know, I think I had been making like s- seventy thousand dollars or something at that time. And so, like, to make you know, essentially a quarter of my salary, I was like, "This this is a thing."
0: Yeah. All right. So you quit. Barclays, Yeah. And does anybody in your I mean, your mom, like, you know, she had to work really hard <laughs> to, um, you know, to make a living to support you. And then you go off to college. And I'm sure so many people are so proud of you. And you had relatives mm-hmm. in Detroit who were like, Oh, my gosh, she's, un- I'm sure. if I'm your mom, I'm like, my <laughs> daughter's at Barclays. She's Absolutely. working on Wall Street. You know, I'm, I'm so proud. <laughs> and then you call me and you say, Mom, I'm quitting. I'm starting a lipstick company. What did What did people in your family say?
1: Oh, they thought I was crazy. My mom, <laughs> she was like, what? And then I remember her literally explicitly saying, who's going to pay your bills? <laughs> and I was like well I'm gonna pay my bills I think I saved up I, I tried to save up what I thought would be a year's worth of my expenses I ran out in like six months but my my family thought I was crazy when I quit and my feeling was just like look I am more comfortable with the idea of failure than I am with regret and, and that's what made me say I can do it
0: and now you are the ceo of
1: the lip bar
0: um you have i'm assuming you have no money right there's no how are you financing we're dead broke. yeah how are you financing this business
1: oh my goodness we're we're literally dead broke me and roscoe ended up like airbnbing her bedroom and she moved into my room so that we could like cover our expenses. You know, if the first year we made 26000 then I think the next year we may have made like 56000 which is great. We're yep, doubling. That's
0: growth. Yep.
1: Yeah, we're, we're growing. But, but ultimately, we're not really making money. We're not really profitable.
0: And Roscoe was doing freelance work on the side.
1: Yep. She's doing freelance work sometimes. And I'm I'm full time, and and I, I say full time with like air quotes because it's not like I had any yeah. benefits or a salary, right. but I'm I'm giving this my full attention, full attention rather. Yeah. <laughs> so I was still making the products in wow. my kitchen. So I was I was focusing on on innovation. I'm making new colors, and I'm thinking of new marketing ideas because you know Roscoe is handling the the creative in terms of our photo shoots, but basically I'm handling every single thing else because right. like my first team of Friends, that first team had all fizzled out probably within the first, I don't know, nine months. Right. Um. So, yeah, I'm on social media. I'm documenting the process of me making lipstick, um, and people are really intrigued by that. People can't believe that I'm actually making lipstick in my kitchen.
0: So you are grinding away, Roscoe's grinding away. You're trying to get this off the ground. You're doing this in New York, and. I guess around 2013, maybe 2014, you decide to move it to Detroit, like to, to go back to where you grew up. Um, why? I mean, New York, right, is the global center of fashion, one of the global centers of fashion. Yeah. Um, certainly the center of like the fashion industry in the U.S., the big makeup brands, I think, are headquartered there. So why did you decide to to leave New York?
1: Well, number one, I was running out of money, right? You know, we had we weren't making much money. I had been thinking about it, like, should I stay in New York? We had already made a lot of connections with beauty editors. Um, We had been getting press. So I felt like we made a mark and and we could still grow without being there. And then on top of that, I saw the narrative of Detroit changing
0: around 2013.
1: Yeah, yeah. So you know, in 2012, when I first started the company, it was all about Detroit and and Detroit's ruins. Yeah. And in 2014, the narrative was changing. Shinola had just come to Detroit, mm-hmm. and and people were investing in Detroit, and downtown was becoming cool again. And I was like, bakeries
0: Wait. and vegan restaurants and yeah. Right, yeah.
1: I was like, maybe <laughs> maybe it's time for me to go home to to build this business and number one i can be a part of this renaissance i can make sure that people who look like me are a part of this renaissance because you know i had been experiencing firsthand what gentrification looks like because i was living in brooklyn yeah and so i'm like i knew that new york didn't need me and that i could do a lot more in my hometown you know i never thought that detroit really um deserved the bad reputation that it had gotten and I wanted it to be a part of like this new thing and and to meet the movers and shakers that that were were making it happen. So I was excited for the city. I just wanted to make sure that black people were a part of of the resurgence.
0: When we come back in just a moment, how Melissa and Roscoe spread the word about the Lip Bar first on a nationwide tour in a retrofitted airport shuttle bus and then with an appearance on Shark Tank, which does not go particularly well. Stay with us. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to How I Built This from NPR. Support for How I Built This comes from 3M. From helping drive vaccine and therapy development with advanced purification technologies to developing an adjuvant that helps boost vaccine effectiveness, the research scientists at 3M are delivering innovative healthcare solutions to help us today and prepare us to better tackle what's next. Learn more at 3M.com slash improving lives. 3M science applied to life. This message comes from NPR sponsor Don Julio Tequila. Don Julio Gonzalez didn't just farm agave. He worshipped them. He harvested each agave individually, plant by plant, only handpicking the agaves at optimum maturity. And his legacy lives on today through his exceptional tequila, Don Julio, a life devoted to tequila making. Please drink responsibly. Don Julio tequila, 40% alcohol by volume, copyright 2021, imported by Diageo Americas, New York, New York. Hey, welcome back to How I Built This from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. So it's around 2014 and Melissa Butler has left New York and moved the business to her hometown of Detroit. And she knows that if women could just try her lipstick, could just see the colors, they'd love it.
1: So I knew that I wanted to be in retail, but I knew that we also weren't ready. So. I decided that in order to get our products in front of customers, that we would, instead of trying to figure out what counter can we get behind, how do we bring the counter to our customers? And so we built the lip bar truck, which was what we we deemed the most glamorous beauty experience on wheels. And we went on a tour.
0: You built like a, a truck that was decorated with your logo. Full of like a like like an ice cream truck.
1: So my ex boyfriend built party buses like uh, from his bare hands. Wow! And I was I had the idea. I was like, I want you to build me basically a beauty store on wheels where people get, could come in, sit down, try on their product. We have music and we really make it into an experience so that I can get my product in front of more people.
0: Ah, uh, okay. It's
1: basically like a shuttle bus. Right. So, you know, he took out the old funky seats and, you know, built a countertop, like wrapped around the entire bus, built a cash register in the back um, because the goal was always we're going to build this truck and then we're going to go on this tour. Hmm. And we're going to go across the country spreading our message about, you know, these vegan and cruelty free and inclusive lip colors.
0: And you would just like park on a street in a city
1: so the plan the initial plan was that i was just going to go to different cities and park on the street right but then when i what i learned is that you're supposed to have a permit <laughs> <laughs> and this was like the major plot twist because i didn't have time i planned this so that i could go on tour once it was done and we had already been talking about it i think on our social media and but the the responsible part of me said okay why don't we Find stores that we can park in front of and partner with, because if you park in front of the store and it's kind of like an event in conjunction with that space, because technically, you know, the brick and mortar store they kind of own their sidewalk. Yeah. So if we parked in front of a store that we had a relationship with, then we could do it without the permit. So I started finding um, partners and in all these different cities that I wanted to go to, and our most impressive partnership is that we got urban outfitters to agree and this is the urban outfitters in dc to agree to partner with us and they wow. they brought in like water and drinks and they allowed us to park in front and they kind of rolled a red carpet so that it was wow. clearly like a part of urban outfitters for the, the
0: one day. in the one in Georgetown.
1: Yeah. 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 So we were able to open up the side doors and we put a TV right there so that if people are just walking by, they can kind of see our messages like flashing and display. Oh, yeah. So people would naturally stop because they're like, this truck looks cool. So many people thought that it was like drinks naturally. <laughs> So they would come up. Guys would come up and say, "What do you got in there? You got beer?" And we're <laughs> like, "No, we have lipstick. Come on up. Bring your wife." <laughs> and we, and then like, oftentimes the woman would come up because she was so intrigued. She's like, "You have lipstick on there?" And she would come up, and the the whole truck was mirrors. Wow. And and she would come on, and she would try on the product, and you know, she would more often than not love the product and, and make a purchase.
0: And and how long did this tour last?
1: Um, we went on two different tours, and I want to say the first one, which was the largest one, maybe six weeks.
0: Wow. Were you able to finance the trip through sales?
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So the the first tour um, was wonderful, and that inspired us to go on a second tour. And that's when we went on this, like, black college tour. So we went back to my alma mater. And to drive from Detroit to Florida is crazy in a truck that's not so great. And so, Guy, on the way back from this like black college tour that we did, and we actually made a lot of money and we were really excited about it, the truck started breaking down. (laughs) And like, I remember we were maybe four hours away and we just kind of stopped the truck and we parked it and we were like, okay, maybe she just needs a rest. Okay. Maybe if we just give her some time off and I think we just let it sit for an hour Mm -hmm. and then she took us home and, and that was the last time we really drove it. But yeah, I, I'm so emotional about the truck, so I can't get rid of it.
0: You know, it's so interesting because the kind of the playbook you used is very similar to what Whitney Wolfe did when she launched Bumble. She went to, um, she went to like Southern Methodist University, and she basically hosted these parties where she got people to learn. She 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 taught people how to use Bumble and started with college students. And you went to black colleges, and I'm assuming you went to probably a lot of Delta chapters, right? Because you were in that sorority.
1: Yeah. There're tons of influential women who are a member of of Delta Sigma Theta and when you join the sorority like it's all about sisterhood and it's all about support and it's all all about you know building up your community so by leaning on them and making sure that they were super aware of what I was doing I was also baking in a business model essentially and I think that's part of the reason why the Lit Bar has been able to grow because it's just been this strong community of people who look at me and say, wow, she's she's doing something for us.
0: And meantime, you still need to get some visibility. And so you decide to do something that is really smart but also really risky, which is to apply to be on Shark Tank. Yeah. Which is a great idea, but – um. You know, lots of people apply to Shark Tank. So how did it happen that that they picked you? Do you you know?
1: Well, I think Shark Tank picked us because we were fun and we were being ourselves. So we submitted a video where we were talking about the product, but also we were hula hooping. Hmm. <laughs> and and I think we were talking about the product while hula hooping. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of gimmicky, but enough to like make you pay attention to yeah. what
0: we were saying. And they want people who are gonna be good on television and fun. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And maybe a month after we submitted that video, they reached out and they were like, you know, we're the producers of Shark Tank and, and we're interested in, in your business. Can we ask you a bunch of questions? So I think we went back and forth for maybe six weeks of them just collecting a ton of paperwork and asking us a ton of questions. And the next thing you know, we're in California filming.
0: Welcome to the Shark Tank. We had Jamie Siminoff, who founded A Ring, um, on the show a couple months ago. And he, he described his experience that it was really terrifying, you know, because you don't meet them until you actually walk out and pitch your product.
1: Hi, I'm Melissa Butler. And I'm Roscoe Spears. And, and we live in Brooklyn, Brooklyn New York. And, and we were kind of nervous, and, and they were so cruel to us. Oh my goodness. This
0: is a new innovation. I can see a massive market share in the clown market.
1: They told Roscoe that, that she looked dead. That they she
0: looked dead?
1: Because of the color of her lipstick. Mm-hmm. So Roscoe, aren't
0: you worried if you walked into a bar with that color lip? Somebody tried to resuscitate you?
1: Yep, she had on green and I think I had on purple. It's difficult for women of all these different complexions and undertones to find colors that are perfect for them. What you end up seeing is probably seven or eight minutes, but we were recording for maybe an hour. Right. So I'm explaining to them that that the industry um, is changing and that the bigger companies are slow to change. And yep. we're this smaller company and, and we're fast to change. And that's that's our strength. Yeah. and they were like, "Well, if the big companies wanted to do it, they just would, and they would crush you like the colorful cockroaches you are." Is exactly what they said.
0: And they would crush you like the colorful cockroaches you are. You only have so many minutes on Earth. Don't waste them trying to sell lipstick. I'm out. Wow. Um, you know, there's a shtick there, that kind of that that mean kind of shtick, and and that's part of what totally. they do. But but I think I think Kevin O'Leary um, said hey, the chances that this business will succeed are zero, practically zero.
1: And what they didn't show on air is that When he said, like, don't waste your time trying to sell lipstick, they then went into this whole internal debate on like what we actually should be doing. They're like, listen, you're beautiful girls. Your dresses are nice. Why don't you go into the fashion business, Uh, which is so offensive. And and I had been so prepared to talk numbers because like here I am like a former finance girl and like I'm ready to talk business. And they didn't I think the most disappointing thing for us wasn't that they called us colorful cockroaches like I actually didn't even care about that statement at the time. I think that it was more offensive that they did not even consider us as business women.
0: Did did you walk out of that out of that recording like angry or just sad or
1: No, I wasn't angry. I was just sad. Hmm. I was sad that that we had That I felt so strongly that we had something special and that they didn't see it. And what we're doing is representing that population that's not a part of, you know, the fine line that you have established and that the country has decided is beautiful. And we're here for that person. We're here for for the woman with a low haircut and tattoos. We're yeah. here for the woman who's plus-sized and who had, at that time, not been used in beauty campaigns. We're here for the the Black women. We're here for the brown women. We're here for the Asian women. Like, there has to be increased representation. So I was like, I'm not stopping.
0: All right, so you you come out of there. But it sounds like... It sounds like, even though you felt like they were not so kind, um, (laughs) um, that it forced you to refine the story you were telling about. Lip bar. About the lip bar,
1: it did, and it forced me to start thinking more so about how we market the company. Mark Cuban was really adamant around me being at the forefront of the brand. Mm-hmm. He was like, "Look, your story is really cool. You need to step into into your brand. You need to be your storyteller." At this time, I was not at the the forefront of the business. I didn't want Melissa Butler to be the lip bar. I wanted the lip bar to. To be the lip bar, and for Melissa Butler to be Melissa Butler, right. and so over time, I did realize that that was hurting the company with me not being at the forefront. Because today, people are looking for brands that are going to be more transparent, right? And and they want to know who's who behind is behind the business. Yeah. yeah. Yeah.
0: All right. So you come back to you come back to Detroit, and eventually this this Shark Tank episode airs because I think they they end up airing like six or seven months after they're actually filmed.
1: Yeah, and we had no idea. They don't really they warn you. They not tell you, you right. We, we found out maybe 10 days in advance.
0: And did, even though you got kind of pilloried by them, that must have helped your visibility.
1: Oh, it's crazy. Oh, our website crashed that night. (laughs) I want to say we had like 40,000 hits to the website within just a couple of minutes. Wow. We had all this stuff on like back order. We couldn't like maintain the orders. I was still shipping the orders, I think. And Shark Tank really like fast tracked us into like hiring people.
0: Yeah. By the way, you were still. This is just being financed entirely through cash flow. You have not not raised any money or anything. You're you're hiring people and paying them probably a small salary and offering them some equity.
1: Really, just paying them a small salary. Right. So, and we're hiring entry level people. Right. Basically, like hourly workers to just help us ship the orders, and we had just started transitioning into getting the products manufactured. Hmm. So that was my goal. Like, okay, well, Melissa, you need to get your product manufactured so that you can then launch into retail. Wow! So that was the goal for 2015. Let's find a manufacturing partner. And then it was time. I was like, I'm gonna find a retailer and and Target. It was our our goal.
0: Target was your goal.
1: Target was the only people we pitched. And
0: now Target, everybody wants to be in Target, right? I mean, that's Mm -hmm. like the top place to get into. They get pitched a million times a day. Did you even have any connections? Like, had had who did you who did you know to call?
1: I had no connections, and I, I so I couldn't call anyone. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I'm gonna just start reaching out to the buyers. And so I went on LinkedIn and I started searching for target buyers, like hmm. color cosmetics buyers. Like I was searching everything. I love beauty that. buyer, yeah. color cosmetics buyer, target buyer, and I think I was like emailing like. Twelve different people. So this is probably a eight months eight month process of me stalking people at Target.
0: Wow! And so uh, after eight months of stalking people, um, you eventually do connect with a, a Target buyer. I think a makeup buyer. Yeah. And and I'm I'm curious. Like, what what did you say in your email to her? Because I mean, I'm sure that that this buyer was getting lots of emails, and, and, and you had to stand out. So what did you write?
1: Oh, I mean, I threw the whole kitchen sink in. I told her a little bit about the story and about our truck and how cool we are and how, you know, I think we had maybe 40,000 followers on social media or something. I told her that everything was vegan and cruelty-free. I talked about how cool our packaging was. but I think that the real thing that stood out was that I talked more than anything about what we could do for Target instead of what Target could do for us. I'm like, my customer's shopping there and she's not shopping there for makeup. And it's because you don't have me, basically. And so on my second follow-up, she came back and was like, oh wait, your packaging actually is really cool. Can you send me some samples? And I probably screamed, and I don't you know, screamed. I probably, sc- I screamed and I probably took a <laughs> lap around my house cause that's what I do and I'm really excited. Yeah. And then we had a call and she was like, look, I think that your brand is really cool. But I'll also I know that your brand is really small and like maybe too small for Target, I don't know. And she was like, but I'm willing to take a chance and allow you to drop shit on target.com. Like, do you want to launch on target.com? And I'm like, absolutely. Wow. And so what we did was we launched a brand new color and we blasted it to our audience. But you couldn't get it on our website. You could only get it on Target.com.
0: But how did you – I mean there's thousands, tens of thousands of products on Target.com. How did you gain visibility on, on, on the website initially?
1: So the thing about launching in a retailer is it's not their job to sell your product. It's your job to sell your product. Right. So we literally pushed all of our like our emails, our social media followers, all our friends and family. It was like a brand new launch. Like, oh my god, we're in Target. We were so excited. We sh- we shared it with our community in a way where it was a win for all of us. Like, can you believe that the lip bar is now on target.com? Well, wow. and and they they bought that color. And it sold out, actually. And she was like, "Okay, I want to introduce you to the store buyer, essentially. And we pitched and we were launching in Target nine months later. Wow.
0: You know, I think a lot of people walk into a Target and think, oh, all the products here, the people who make them are probably multimillionaires. But it's actually not that simple because there's lots of products at Target and you got to sell them. But I have to imagine that being on the shelves at Target meant that you started to generate some revenue that, that started to make your business sustainable.
1: Yeah, so we launched and we went into 44 stores. That was the test that was offered. We didn't have a marketing budget, but we had a publicist. We hired a publicist to really promote and push out this idea that, you know, this small business that's vegan, I think we were one of the only vegan brands in Target. Um, and, and the reality is the makeup aisle didn't really have any small businesses. Hmm. So the fact that we have shelf space in Target as this really small brand was like an anomaly. Yeah. So we had this huge PR campaign and I don't know, we must have gotten like ten billion impressions in like a week.
0: Wow. Well you got this so this PR person got you guys coverage in like beauty magazines and
1: she got us placed in maybe two two websites. I think Allure was one and I don't remember the other. Yeah. But everyone shared it. Everyone shared that and then, you know, a lot of people started talking about it. Refinery twenty nine talked about it. Teen Vogue talked about it. And we we had like the number one selling lipstick for the first month of our launch with no marketing budget. And Target was like, whoa, we weren't expecting this of this brand. And so we grew very quickly. So we went from 40 stores to I think 144 stores. And then we went into like 400 stores and now we're in about 500 stores about to expand again.
0: You, I think in 2018 for the first time you you brought in some outside funding. You got um, an outside investment. Did you ever, I mean, think about pitching to VCs and to venture you know, to, to investors, or did did that investment kind of do they kind of come to you and say, Hey, we wanna we wanna invest?
1: Well it's a mixture of both. So now we're in Target stores, right? And and we're growing in Target and yeah. you know we need it money. We need it money. To finance for, the business. Yeah, because this is inventory and, yeah. and the beauty industry is not necessarily replenishable. So the average woman, it may take her eight months to even use her favorite lipstick and I remember having calls with investors and and pitching people and they would all say like Melissa you're so impressive like you're such an impressive founder but we're not gonna we're not gonna invest the reality is guy black women are starting businesses faster than any other group of people in this country but we're not getting funding and also because we're not getting funding we can't really grow our ideas so if we really want to like reduce the wealth gap in this country, we're gonna have to start giving opportunities to to women who look like me.
0: Hey, Tristan Walker was on the show last year, founder of Walker and company Bevel is his best best known product, and he pointed out on the show that if you look at the beauty industry and consumers by far, far and away, on a proportional basis, black consumers spend more money on beauty products than any other group in the United States.
1: Yeah. It's been reported that we spend nine times anyone else on beauty. But meanwhile, you know, black businesses, black beauty businesses aren't well-funded. So for a smaller company, it's like we have to fight tooth and nail to get a little funding.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, and, And I should say you were able to finally get some money, um, from a fund that was started by the beauty entrepreneur, Richelieu Dennis, Mm -hmm. um, which is a fund I think he started for Black Women Founders in in, uh, 2018. And then in 2019, you decided to actually open a brick-and-mortar store in Detroit, um, which is, I think, really close to the Shinola store, right?
1: Yeah, we're right behind the Shinola store. We're basically in their alley. And I had never even wanted a store just because, like, no, I don't want to maintain a store or think about a store. We, we were already in Target. But the thing about Detroit is even with its resurgence, there's still very little within the city limits. Like we actually don't have a Target, for instance, in the entire city of Detroit. Like not within the city limits. Hmm. We also don't have a national, like a chain movie theater in the city of Detroit. So, you know, I felt like this was my opportunity to really like, again, be a part of that renaissance and and really um, give people the opportunity to shop high quality makeup. And it really warmed my heart, Guy, because, you know, we open in the dead of winter we opened on our on our birthday, essentially, and we opened to a line of maybe two hundred people. Wow. In the in the dead of winter. Like it's freezing. Because like,
0: people were just so excited about that, about this this opening.
1: People were so excited. This is a city where there frankly isn't a lot of opportunity. And so typically people have to leave to build something. And, you know, and I, I am a person who left, but then I came back. And, and I think that they're really proud about that, and, and and they've they've shown me so much love. Like the lip bar has grown since we've come back. Like we five x the business since I've moved back to Detroit.
0: Of course, then twenty twenty happens. COVID shut down the retail business. Really gets hit. Parts of the beauty industry do okay, but there is a slowdown. Did, did did you guys see a, a pretty significant slowdown? You know, once COVID became a reality in in March and April.
1: Yeah. What's crazy is like February was such a good month for us. Uh-huh. <laughs> February was unprecedented. But you know, I think it was just preparing us for what was next. It was it was so crazy because then in March, I think we we officially closed the store on on March fifteenth and. And that was our worst month in probably a year. You know, people always talk about the lipstick effect, which is this idea that even in an economic recession or even a depression, women will still rely on those small novelties that make them feel good. Mm. But you typically only put on makeup when you're leaving the house, and no one was leaving. And we were really, we were really concerned if I'm going to be just completely honest. I was like, I don't know how we're going to survive this business. Um, the goal and and the approach was really to just do the things that we had always done, which is like, just continuously connect with our customers and meet them where they are. Um, our relationship with our customer is so strong because we actually are our customer. Hmm. So, you know, I'm not married. I'm on online dates right now. And so I'm looking, you know, how do I update my profile? How do I look cute for my FaceTime date? How do I instill confidence to my team? And for me, that was like very easily lip color. I was like by putting on this lip color like i look a little bit more alive i look more confident i look like i'm ready for the day and we pivoted our messaging and then very quickly our sales rebounded so while march was a tough month april was we had grown back to like our norm and then june with the whole black lives matter and and this this more apparent need to support small businesses and particularly small Black-owned businesses. We had our best month ever. Wow. So throughout this pandemic, even though it is uncertain still, um, we've been able to grow the business eighty percent this year. Wow.
0: Yeah, I mean, in May and June, there was, you know, a lot of a growing awareness and and desire among many people who were watching the and taking part in the protests against racial injustice. To support Black businesses, um, and a lot of Black entrepreneurs we've had on the show have talked about those months as being they were just overwhelmed with the with what happened to their businesses and, and the attention that they received during that time. Um, does that continue for you? Has it has it been sustained?
1: Um, our sales have sustained, but that level of support, no. I think that, I mean, for me, I didn't expect it to. Yeah. So I remember when it was happening, I call an all hands meeting with my team and I said, look, we're getting flooded right now. And it's our goal and it's our job to make sure that these aren't charity dollars. And that's the thing. Like, we don't, as As a Black business owner, I don't want you to support my business. I want you to shop my products product, because you think that great. this is... Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Because we make it easy for you to understand what products work for your complexion. Not because you feel bad about something. Because if you shop with that intention in mind, then it doesn't actually allow us to build a a relationship with you. And like our goal is to have lifetime value, you know, with our customer and have this, this um, more than transactional relationship with our customer.
0: Yeah. And, and I mean, you guys have, have branched out into all, kinds of makeup, like you do eyeshadow and and foundation and concealer and and even like the lipstick colors that you're doing now, I guess you're offering, I guess you'd say like more sort of mainstream colors as well.
1: So over time, we've, I mean, we've of course evolved, you know, when we first launched, we were really just trying to make a statement and we had to introduce some practicality. So now we have, you know, we have everything. We have like over 16 nudes because again, we're really driving that whole like, beauty for every single complexion mm-hmm. and we have the best reds like Michelle Obama just wore our red which Lots. is our bestseller in the whole company oh yeah it's crazy but we we stay true to who we are we still have a black lipstick we mm-hmm. still have a blue lipstick we have tons of purple um so it's it's a balance between like how do we leave something for people to get creative or you know reimagine themselves even if it's just for one night
0: do you think you can become because right now you're still growing and probably sort of on the cusp of i'm assuming that on the cusp of sort of you know transforming from a, a small business to a medium-sized business is that is that fair to say
1: yeah totally well actually i don't know what a medium-sized business means
0: <laughs> it's a, it's roughly 25 million in, in in annual sales
1: oh yeah totally we'll we'll get there yeah. no no doubt about that
0: so so let's say you're sort of i mean you are obviously growing and growing fast, and your brand awareness is growing really fast. Do you think, I mean, can you imagine, do you think you can grow to, you know, at scale to become a huge brand independently? Or do you think eventually, like other cosmetics brands like Benefit or, you know, other brands that were event- that eventually became huge, that you would have to be purchased or partnered, you know, with A bigger company, a L'Oreal or Revlon or LVMH or, you know, one of these huge multinationals. Do you think that, I mean, could you see a world where you would partner or you would, you know, become part of their portfolio if it meant that you would become like, you know, ubiquitous everywhere around the world in airports and duty-free shops and so on?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think as an entrepreneur, when you build something, you want it to fly as high as it possibly can. Yeah. And what you see within the beauty space is like typically small businesses end up selling because there's a constant need for money and to outcompete these bigger brands. And the reality is like, I can't out market Maybelline in dollars. Right. You know, I can be more creative than them, but that creativity only goes so far because I can only reach so many people. Um, and so If we had the opportunity to really become like this world-renowned brand, then I I think that that would be the perfect way to like cement the legacy and all of the hard work that that myself and my team has been doing over the last eight years. Because having all of these high and low moments, you know, they've come at the expense of of, of lots of things. There have been times where I've been, you know, a bad sister or a bad friend or a bad girlfriend or a bad daughter, um, because I've been sacrificing for, for the business. So I think the ultimate way to, to say this was worth it is having this brand that, that really makes makeup more inclusive and makes makeup easier and and really has this like landmark and this, this leaves its mark on the beauty industry.
0: When when you think of your journey, Melissa, how much of your success do you think has to do with the hard work that you put in and your intelligence? And how much do you think is because you just you got lucky at times?
1: Um and, and of course I know this question is coming, but it, it's a really tough question. Um <laughs> I think I think earlier on it was all hard work. And I think that hard work is still, you know, I'm still receiving the fruits of that labor. And nowadays I'm thinking it's luck. So I don't think any, anyone can fully take credit. I think that sometimes the universe is just in alignment. And right now I really feel good.
0: That's Melissa Butler, founder and CEO of The Lip Bar. And by the way, after nearly a decade in the beauty business, Melissa says when it comes to putting on her own makeup, she still struggles to get it right.
1: Yes, I'm a beauty founder, but no, I don't know how to do makeup. And people who I would meet, they would say, you shouldn't say that. And I'm like, why? It's true, I don't know how to do my makeup. And like, and I've tried to do a YouTube video and I came out looking like a fool. Like I looked, I looked nothing like that tutorial. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Thanks so much for listening to the show this week. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can also write to us at hibt at npr.org. And if you want to follow us on Twitter, we're at How I Built This or at Guy Raz. My Instagram is at Guy.Raz. This episode was produced by James Delahousie with music composed by Ramtina Arablui. Thanks also to Liz Metzger, Dareth Gales, J.C. Howard, Julia Carney, Neva Grant, and Jeff Rogers. Our intern is Farah Safari. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to How I Built This. This is NPR.
1: How do we reinvent ourselves? And what's the secret to living longer? I'm Anoush Zamarodi. Each week on NPR's TED Radio Hour, we go on a journey with TED speakers to seek a deeper understanding of the world and to figure out new ways to think and create listen now.